0: All right, fun stuff this morning. As we go to uh, Genesis chapter 12, I want to do one thing really quick, if I can, to prime us for next week and get us in that heart and attitude and also to prime us for the text that we're going to be reading this morning. Would you stand this morning? I don't normally do this, but as you can see the title of our message today, if you know it, jump in. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Don't be too cool. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's praise all or just, who knows? Right arm, Father Abraham had many sons. Okay, we can stop. You can sit down. Thank you for humoring me. It started to turn into a train wreck there for a minute. (laughs) Partly because there's a discrepancy between, is it, so let's all praise the Lord or let's just praise the Lord. I don't know which is right. I don't know if that's Southern or Midwestern, who knows. But who in here grew up learning, singing that song and also not really fully understanding it as you look back in hindsight like me? Yeah, a lot. I, that's a song I've known since probably I could speak, I'm sure. I was singing it in the lower years Of children's church and Sunday school and I remember getting a little older and going why am I calling Abraham my father like why are we singing this song and further what are these weird motions about but I guess we do that with kids songs a lot to try and keep the kids interested and keep them engaged and so we sing that song one because it's also relative to our text this week Turned, as we have said to Genesis chapter 12, as we continue on in the book of Romans, and we just finished Romans chapter 3 last week, This we're going to be in Genesis 12 because if we're going to properly understand Romans chapter 4, and even to highlight and, and uh, understand a little better the chapters that we've already been in, like chapters 2 and 3, having a full understanding. And a refreshed perspective on Abraham, his call, God's covenant that he created with him. On all of those things are going to help us rightly understand the book of Romans. So the first half of this message today is going to be digging into Genesis and Abraham and his story. The second half of this message today is going to be then translating how that relates to what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 4. So let's remember Paul spent a majority of the first three chapters of this letter to the Romans, telling the Romans and us that there is none good, none righteous, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Everyone needs a Savior. Say everyone. Everyone needs a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And we don't find salvation by obeying or doing good works from the law. Rather, we found salvation in Christ by placing our faith and our trust In Jesus Christ. Now, as you have turned to, or not Romans, Genesis chapter 12, let's revisit a little bit of the history of Abram because we're not going to be able to read his entire story or we need to go get our kids out of the class right now for those kids' workers' sake. We're not going to read all of it. We're going to read parts of it. And I want to encapsulate a few parts of it. We know from Genesis that Abram was the son (coughs) of Terah, uh, uh, Terah, a man who was a descendant of Shem, who was the son of Noah. Remember Noah, the flood, the ark. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham was the son that after the waters receded and they're back on the land, and it says that Noah was a, a cultivator, a gardener. There was a day that Noah sinned, he got drunk, and he was in his tent, drunk himself to a sleep, to a stupor. Um, and Ham goes in the tent, sees his father's nakedness. The right thing he, for him to have done would have been to turn away and go back out and protect his father's honor um, by saying nothing about it. And instead, the implication of the story is that he beheld his father's nakedness and then went out and told his brothers. Um, and so... With that, Noah condemns Ham and blesses Shem. Shem gets the primary blessing. And of course, back in biblical days, there was the firstborn blessing or a primary blessing that was given to one of the sons. And all sons would get a blessing, but there was always a primary. Shem received that blessing because of Ham's actions. Ham had four sons, one of them named Canaan, one named Egypt, one named Cush, one named Put. A few names or regions in there you might recognize. When you hear Egypt, that was one of Ham's sons. Same thing for Canaan. When you hear about the land of Canaan and Canaanites, these were Ham's sons. Then Shem was the righteous or the the son that received the blessing from Noah. Um, And then you can see they all spread out in all these different areas and humanity unfold from that. With that Abram again was the son of Terah who was a descendant from Shem and uh, Terah and his family lived in what scripture tells us is called Ur of the Chaldeans. We're having a fun history lesson this morning. Ur of the Chaldeans was a city in the region of Babylonia what would become called Babylon and what fast forward thousands of years today is called Iraq. Now, Babylon or Babylonia and Iraq don't have the same borders throughout the years. But where Noah, or I'm sorry, Abram was born in Ur of the Chaldeans was in, um, in modern day Iraq, about 180 miles south of Baghdad. So that's where Noah's dad and his family lived. One day Noah's dad, Terah, is like, hey, uh, I'm sorry, Noah, I keep saying Noah, Abram's dad, Terah. And uh, he said, hey, Abram and your wife, Sarai, and uh, my grandson, um, let's go out to Canaan. Let's go that way and let's live there. And they get up and they leave and they go. For, what, for whatever reason, we don't know, scripture doesn't tell us that Terah decided to stop in um, another territory, another region there called Haran. Haran. And they stayed there and ended up putting their roots there. This is north of Canaan. And they lived there for a while, so much so that the family expands. And as you read the story later, when these descendants are wanting to find wives for Jacob and Isaac, they say, let's go back up to Haran, to our family, to keep their bloodlines pure, is what they were attempting to do. So, um, Haran says, hey Abram, my son, hey Lot, my grandson, Abram's nephew, Let's go to Canaan and then they stayed there in Haran on the way to Canaan. We're going to pick up now reading in Genesis chapter 12 where God first addresses Abram to our knowledge. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Pause. If you are a highlighter, a underliner, a circler or a note taker, that statement right there has eternal implications. When God says to Abram and in you, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is good news for us. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Going on in verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. When the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So we see Abram called by God to go to Canaan or to the land that he would show him. Mean, he didn't even say to him immediately, like, go to Canaan. That's the place. He's like, go to a place I'm going to show you. They leave on the way. God leads them there to Canaan. And then he tells him, hey, I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants. And Abram responds by building an altar of worship to God. So then Abram and Sarah essentially go on about their lives there there's different stories and different things that happen for the next few chapters there was a famine they go away to Egypt for a little while Abram does some sinful things by lying about his wife and listen let me remind you even though Abram is the father of our faith and all the different patriarchs of the Bible from Hebrews chapter 11 all of them apart from Jesus were sinners in need of a savior just like you Just like me. So when we look at Abram, we don't just go, wow, what incredible faith he had. We also go, wow, man, he was a sinner. There was still something wrong with him as well. So Abram and Sarah go about their lives knowing God made promises to Abram to make him a great nation. Even though Sarai was barren. She has never had any children and God says, hey, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make you a great nation. At which point they're probably going, how's that going to happen? Because Sarai is barren. But Abram obeyed and followed God to the land of Canaan. Let's skip ahead for time's sake, as much as I'd love to read all of this. Let's go to chapter 15 now. Genesis chapter 15, we'll pick up in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great, but Abram said, "Oh Lord God, what would you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of or Eleazar of Damascus." He's like, "Man, re, your, my rewards shall be great." You're telling me, but what is a reward if I don't even have anyone to pass it on to? If I don't have a name to pass on, if I don't have a lineage and a heritage to hand over, I'm just gonna. When I die, I'm gonna have to hand it over. To this guy who's not even in my family, he's a servant in my household, Eleazar. Verse 3, and Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, (laughs) if you're able to number them. Almost a little bit of humor, almost sounds like sarcasm from God like there. Hey, Abram, go ahead and number the stars if you think you can. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, meaning that the number of stars. Now, telescopes have helped us find out a little bit about the billions and innumerable stars out there. God is using that as a picture to say to Abram, that's how great Your descendants will be. So shall your offspring be. Verse six. Here's another one to highlight, underline, circle, write down. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram is told by God, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you more descendants than the stars that you can count in the sky. So shall your offspring be. And Abram, even though he's 75 years old, even though his wife is barren against all hope, is what we'll see in Romans chapter 4, against every reason to have hope that this could actually come true, Abram believes God. Now, here's the tricky part. Abram believes God, but then we see some time goes on. Enough time goes on to where Sarai begins becoming impatient. And one day uh, we see as the book of Genesis continues that Sarai pulls Ar- Abram aside and says, Hey, um, I don't know what God's doing, dragging his feet or whatever, but I don't know if this is going to happen this way or this timing. So here, take my servant, Hagar. She was an Egyptian servant. And she said, Take her, lie with her, go into her so that we can have that inheritance, we can have that descendant that will pass on. Abram sinfully listened to his wife. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's sinful to listen to your wife. <laughs> right, honey? In this instance, it was. Just like it was sinful for Adam to listen to Eve when Eve gave him the fruit, when he was with him, or when, when he was with her, in the same instance, Abram should have said, no, sweetheart, that's not what we're going to do. That's not God's way. Yet, he listened to her. He married Hagar, went into her, and they conceived. And, he, and all this time that, that Sarai had been trying to conceive and been barren, Hagar conceives right away. And then Sarah becomes bitter towards Hagar. There's animosity between them. She starts mistreating her to the extent that Hagar runs away, tries to flee. She's out in the desert. God visits her through an angel and says, hey, what are you doing? Go back. And she has a son in that vision or in that angelic uh, visitation. The messenger of God tells her, hey, your son is going to be great. And uh, he's going to be a great nation as well. Now he's going to be wild and he's going to be set against many people. And many people are going to be set against him. He's going to be fighting all the time is what he's saying. Really interesting to see thousands of years later what's going on in the Middle East, right? When God told Hagar, your son is going to be wild and many will be set against him. He will be set against many, yet he will be over many. If you didn't know, um, today, uh, Arabs and especially Muslims would consider Ishmael the line of their heritage through Father Abraham. They would call Abraham their father as well. In fact, even through all, from this point, all the way thousands of years later, um, all the way up until the 6th century, when a guy named Muhammad comes on the scene. And Muhammad starts... Um, in his 40s having um, what he would have called prophetic utterances and visions from God. I would disagree. I believe that they were false. But up at, that, up at that point, even up until that point, throughout history, people who descended from Ishmael maintained the knowledge of that connection and declared Arabs for thousands of years would have said, we are, and still do, we are descendants of Ishmael. And if you read the Quran, You'll see that although they would consider Abraham their father wherein the Old Testament the Torah teaches that that Isaac was the son of promise and the son of covenant the Quran says no actually Ishmael was and the Quran takes it and says that Ishmael was the son of sacrifice and it's funny here we are I want you to imagine for a minute that Ishmael Who's born, he's the, at one point, the son of Abraham. Well, I mean, always, technically, was the son of, of Abram, who would become Abraham. And you have heard your whole life up until a certain point, at least up until you're 13 years old, that Abram, your father, was given a promise from God. That God made a covenant with your dad that he's going to be the father of many nations. And then you are the son. Of that man. And you start thinking, man, I'm going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to be the descendant of Abraham that has this covenant that's made that also comes with this land. And then when you're 13 years old, God visits Abraham again, or Abram, renames him as Abraham, and then tells him, actually, I have a promise for you to give you this land and to make your name a great nation, but it's not through him. It's through another son that I'm going to give you and you'll name him Isaac. Makes you kind of have a little bit of an understanding for the context of what we see today of the tensions in the Middle East where you see Islam against Judaism as well as Christianity. It also helps you understand that in the uh, 6th century when the Quran was written it very much is written in a way that is directly oppositional to Christianity and Judaism. In fact, one of, what is one of the primary um, doctrines of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, if you read the Quran, and even if you go and you visit Jerusalem and you look at the Al-Aska Moks, uh, uh, Mosque, the, the dome of the rock that's been built on the Temple Mount, you'll see engraved on it that God has no son or Allah has no son. This is primary in Islam because they're trying to challenge and fight and refute Christianity. And so Islam is very much written and developed in a way. Whereas uh, the, the irony, I guess you would say, is that the modern Muslim today would still say the Bible's good and from God. The Torah is good and from God. And they would endorse them except they would give caveats of saying although they've been corrupted and tainted by men. Now why would they say that? Because there are plenty of things in scripture that contradict what the Quran says, what the Quran teaches. The Quran explicitly says that God has no son and therefore Jesus is not God's son. Jesus was a prophet continuing on the message of the Old Testament and that the message is finally fulfilled and complete and what was given through Muhammad, that being the Quran. And so it's funny, all these synonyms or all these connections. Today, you look at the news and you see the tensions and the war and the fighting that today is still happening From one decision wherein Abram sinfully tried to make God's will happen in his timing, in his way. And we look at the news today. Genesis 17, let's continue on. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, <clears throat> excuse me, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. That, that addition there is implying fatherhood. all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Can you imagine being Abraham on that day, getting that commandment? Where God's saying, hey, here's the covenant. You're going to be circumcised. Also your son and all your sons after you on the eighth day is when they would be circumcised. Now I want to connect this back to what we've been talking about for a few weeks where we've been going through the book of Romans and we've seen Paul challenging the idea to the Jewish Christians who are in the church of Rome, who are trusting in their circumcision and their birth lineage from Abraham. Does this help you understand a little bit why they would be bristling a little bit when they hear Abraham say, hey, your circumcision counts as nothing if you don't keep all of the law. And the true Jew is not the one who is just born of Abraham, whose circumcision is of the flesh. The true Jew is the one whose circumcision is of the heart, whose praise is before God, not before man. Because if you grew up a Jew born of the bloodline of Abraham, and you knew you would have been taught from a young age these things, in fact, you would have had these passages memorized, you would well know, you would well know, that you were, you were circumcised, the reason why you were circumcised, that that was the covenant symbol between you and God, and because of that, you were God's people. And then the new covenant comes the covenant by which God saves people, not by works of the law, not by external marks of the covenant on the flesh of circumcision, but an internal mark of God on the heart. Then God promises Isaac to Abraham, says, hey, the son that I'm going to give you will be the father of these nations. And Abraham argues with God a little bit. He's like, basically, he's like, hey, God, uh, I'm old. Like, I've already got Ishmael. Like, let's do it through him. Abraham loves his son Ishmael. And God says to Abraham, ultimately, he essentially says, nope. Nope. He's not the promised son through whom I'm going to take my covenant forward. I'm going to give you another son named Isaac. Now, you can, we could debate about that, about why not Ishmael. I think there's a couple of strong cases. Could be because he was conceived in sin, could be that he was conceived in unbelief or a moment of unbelief and trying to make God's promises happen. It was out of faith. Um, uh, but that's all speculation because scripture doesn't exactly meticulously say. What we do know is that God says, no, that's not the son that I'm going to continue this covenant through. It's going to be a son I'm going to give you. He'll be Isaac. And actually we can read in Genesis that Abraham was a little like grieved about this. He was excited that Ishmael would be the one. If we fast forward uh, to Genesis chapter 18, then we'll see where Sarah or God visits Abraham, so to speak, through three angels, three men, it would say in that passage. And then these angels have, go into a a tent with Abraham and they start talking to him again saying, hey, this time next year, your wife, Sarah, or Sarah is going to have a son. And Sarah is outside the tent by the door. She hears this and she laughs because she's going, she says, (laughs) um, I'm old and worn out, and the way of women has left me. I guess that's the old biblical way of saying I've had menopause. She's saying, I'm old and worn out, and I can't have babies. Not only is she saying I'm barren, but she's saying the way of women has left from me. And so she, outside of the tent, laughs. God calls her out and says, hey, uh, Sarah, what are you laughing about? And she's like, oh, this is awkward. Uh, uh, I, I didn't laugh. And God's like, no, I'm God. I see everything and know everything. You did laugh. And for, uh, of course, God's word proves true. Later, uh, a year later, they have a son, Isaac, the son of promise, the son of covenant through whom God would continue his covenant that he gave to Abraham. Now imagine again being Ishmael, hearing these things, seeing these things, and then this, from his perspective, he might have thought this little brat comes in and takes it all away. What we'll see as we read on in the story is that when when Isaac was old enough to be weaned around two years old, that there's a festival and everybody's celebrating and Ishmael is laughing and it's laughing in a way that Sarah gets mad and says enough of Hagar and Ishmael. She goes to Abraham and says get them out of here and he says okay and Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out and you're like wow just for laughing and uh, they're kicked out and Ishmael's out in the, or Hagar and Ishmael are out in the desert. She's worried she's about to die. She's worried her son's about to die. And God once more speaks to Hagar out in the desert and says, hey, I've seen you. I see your suffering. I see the injustice imposed upon you. And I, uh, Ishmael's not going to die. He will live. I'm going to take care of him. He's going to be, I will bless him. He will be great. He will have 12 princes um, as sons. And Of course, here we are thousands of years later seeing the family and the lineage that is very present still today in this world that even though that wasn't the covenant that God was going to create with his people, God still was faithful to them. Okay, now as we're about to jump back to Romans chapter four, let me remind you what it says in Genesis 15 and six. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him God counted to Abraham that belief as righteous or as righteousness. What is righteousness? That's a biblical term, a Christian term we say sometimes, and maybe we don't define enough. Righteousness, in this context especially, means being in right standing before God or in a right relationship with God. Meaning you are not his enemy if you are righteous, if you are unrighteous and you are made righteous that means you were his enemy and you are now in right standing with him. Another term that you see in scripture especially in the New Testament for this is the term justification or justified where you are made righteous just as if your sin had never happened with God being the holy perfect righteous judge who sees all. In fact that's what Hagar praises God for and and says he is the God who sees. So her suffering in her mourning yet at the same time he's the God who sees our sin sees our failures our mistakes not only does he see our sin that we commit he sees our sin of omission he sees our our sinful thoughts and motives of the heart he sees it all and knows it all and our only hope when we stand before him is that we would be found righteous and justified otherwise we are subject to the wrath of God that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1 and so, as we look today at Romans chapter 4 and verse 1, he says this, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here he's going to quote Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, or it was credited to his account that he was righteous and not in debt to God anymore because of sin. Verse four, now the one who works, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's Paul saying, hey, if you want to try to work and earn righteousness, you're swiping that credit card, going in debt against God. You're not good enough, you're not right enough, You can't work to earn it. Verse five. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from their works. And he's gonna quote Psalms here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Hold on just a second. Is there anyone other than me Who has had lawless deeds. Like when we read that verse, does it comfort your heart? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. I thank God for that truth that the prophet King David declared back in Psalms, that Paul pulls out of Psalms to say, here once more. Going on, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Saying, man, you might have been swiping that card, storing up debt against God because of your sin. But if you are righteous before God by faith, where God is not counting those sins against you, but he sees you as righteous in right relationship before him, where when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner to condemn, but he sees a righteous son or daughter of God to welcome, man, we are blessed. Amen? Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Pause. This is just like baptism today. Last week we baptized five people in our church and it was awesome to hear their stories of how they were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But let me remind you that just like Abraham was counted righteous before God before the covenant symbol of circumcision, he was counted righteous by his faith in God. You and I too are counted right or righteous or justified before God not at the moment of baptism but at the moment of faith, at the moment of trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior. But like Abraham, Abraham believing God and being counted righteous because of that faith, Abraham doesn't get to go, well, I'm righteous before God because I believe his word. And so since I'm righteous because of belief, I'm gonna not obey what he said about circumcision because ouch. No, that faith and belief in God motivated him to obey and so again to you today if if you've not been baptized man your faith in God that makes you righteous before God is also a faith that compels you to obey God and so if you haven't uh, been baptized you should be not because it's going to save you but because you have been saved by faith and you want to obey your Lord amen It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. This is why we can sing, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. This is the verse that makes that true. Now that did come to me spontaneously in first service, but I recited it to you. (laughs) So that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. When Galatians, Paul explains to the Galatians Quoting that verse in Genesis chapter 12, remember where I told you to underline or highlight where he says, and through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. How is that? It's because Abraham, the father of the faith, was counted righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, the same exact way that we, The sons and daughters of Abraham, truly the sons of God, are counted righteous by God through faith. That's why we say Father Abraham. Now, in our stage today, we know truly our ultimate father is God. But this is the father of our faith, Abraham. Verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised. I'm sorry, I lost my place there. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith. There's that obedience that comes afterwards that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's the point of just saying what the whole book of James says, that we can't just go, hey, I have faith, and so I'm right with God, and don't worry, to, don't talk to me about how I live, or what I do, or good works, or whatever. Just let me be, because I believe in God. And James says, well, yeah, but even the demons believe. Faith in God leads to obeying God. Faith in God leads to walking in the footsteps of faithful Abraham. Abraham With our obedience and our living holy, our living in a way that pleases and honors God. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's Paul saying, remember, the law is given so that we have something to be judged against. The law was given so that there's a measuring stick that we stand next to. And God says, yeah, you don't measure up. You are subject to the wrath of God unless you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, that free gift, And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father. Of many nations. Notice, God wasn't just telling Abraham, hey, I've got a literal bloodline nation that you're going to be the father of. God was looking into the corridors of the future, recognizing, hey, I'm not just the God of this one people group, the Jews. I'm the God of all peoples. I am the one true, eternal, living God, the God of all creation. And so my desire is not just to save or uh, uh, select a certain people group to be my people. I'm I'm going to use them to teach the whole world about myself and give the whole world a way to become my people. Verse 17 or 18. No, I'm I'm sorry, 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in in whom he believed who gives life to the dead like dead wombs And calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is is Paul talking about how miraculous and powerful God is. That's not a verse to be taken out of context to say that you can speak things into existence. That's not what that verse is saying. In hope, he, Abraham, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. When there was no reason to believe that these things would come to pass, he believed. Because he trusted God. That he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since it was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised Today, in our day, in our age, when you look around the world and you see the the news from the last couple of years in Ukraine and you see the news in Israel and things begin begin stirring fear and anxiety and worry in you and you worry, wonder, what's going to happen? What's going to happen in Israel? What's going to happen to America? What's going to happen around the world? What's going to happen to me and my family? What's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen to all of us? I want to just remind you what Abraham knew to be true that God is able to do what he said. And the same way that Abraham received a promise about a nation that would come from him, we too have promises from the word of God that anchor our soul, anchor our hope, anchor our joy, anchor our peace for a day wherein we will never have to worry about terrorists ever again that there's coming a day where we don't have to worry or think or consider cancer or sickness ever again. There's coming a day where you don't have to go into awkward family reconciliation conversations because somebody upset somebody ever again. There's coming a day where that won't happen. There's coming a day where we won't have to work out our differences. There's coming a day where we will love one another perfectly and glorify God together perfectly and sing his praises and his worship full Of joy overflowing elated and joyful in a way we can't even imagine right now that is the hope we look forward to if your hope is that if i follow jesus then everything's going to be hunky dory perfect for me in this life but you are in store for an emotional roller coaster of a ride But if your hope is in knowing God and being with him forever, you have the Holy Spirit of God with you through those roller coasters. And you're like, I don't know where the next turn is. I don't know what the next up or down is, but I belong to him. I know he's got me. No one can take me until the day he's appointed for me. So I'm going to trust him and one day be with him. This is why Paul could say all the crazy things that he said, like to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because his hope wasn't in his circumstances. How do you write the letter to the Philippians, the letter of joy, while you're under arrest? If your hope is in your circumstances. How do you stay strong and full of joy and full of hope and full of peace when you get that diagnosis or when when your 401k goes like this or when the economy crashes or when whatever might come if your hope is in the here and now and in God fixing all your immediate problems, friend, You've got a rough time coming ahead. But if you recognize that we are pilgrims, this is not our home. And we cast our hope into eternity with Christ, wherein we will have a day that's better than anything we can even imagine here and now. That is where our hope ought to be. Where did I stop? We're almost done fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Praise God. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up For our trespasses and raised for our justification. We are counted with Abraham as righteous. We are blessed, all the peoples of the earth, when we recognize that we can trust what God says in His Word. We can bank on it and trust that even when it looks like it's delayed, even when it looks like it's taken too long or not the way or the, uh, what we would want, that we can trust in the sovereign God of the universe who is over all. And I'll finish with summarizing the five solas, the things that, that as, as Martin Luther was reading the book of Romans, these five points that came out that we see abundant in the things we're reading right now, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That's the beauty of the gospel of grace. Abraham doesn't have a right to brag, Paul says. This is just by faith. And we have no right to brag but to rejoice with gratitude. Why? Because we're saved by grace, meaning we can't earn it. We're saved through faith, meaning not by works. We're saved by Christ, in Christ alone, not by ourselves or anyone else. And it's according to scripture alone, not the Quran or whatever other writings or ideas you might have. And it is to the glory of God alone. God, I pray today that your word will have penetrated and brought forth transformation. That you'd open our eyes to see the truth, believe the truth. Confess our sin and repent and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and for our hope eternal. Give glory to yourself today, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.